before the daughters who were brought here on the hips of their mothers. Your memory of that other land is like the sky in your dreams. Your home is askance and askew to the home of your mother, and yet you are expected to feel the same sun's warmth when you hear its name spoken aloud. They expect you to remember and care, and a part of you does out of duty, and another part doesn't out of spite and a longing to step forward into a different light. Hello, welcome to another episode of Poetry Here Is. I'm Lulu, uh, this is Tom. Hello. And we're here with uh, Devjani. Hi, Devjani. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to read your bio at the back of your book. Devjani, <coughs> Devjani is a writer and teacher of Indian origin who currently lives in a small town called Rugby in the UK. She has most recently been published by Sunday Mornings at the River in their African Voices Anthology, A Womb with a Heart That Beats All Over the World, and Honey Guide Literary Magazine. She has been a full press mentee and is completing her MA in Creative Writing at the University of Birmingham. Her novel Mirrors was published by Harlan House in December 2019, and she is currently on her second novel, documenting the lives of three women affected by the riots of East Pakistan in the 60s. We're so happy to have you here today. Um, so um, this is at the back of your book for the daughters brought brought here uh, on the back <laughs> on the back of their mothers, published by Fawn Press. Carried here on the hips. Carried here on the hips of yeah. Oh. <laughs> you, and it's you really you really yeah. love this book, right? I do really <laughs> love this. Tell, book. tell us all about how much you loved it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really, I really loved it because it's got such a, a narration of it, and uh, just um, you've got such empathy. I find for every generation, so it's across three generations, right? The granddaughters, the mothers, so also the grandmothers, daughters, granddaughters. I confused everything. Yeah, <laughs> and I just find that it's almost like you were each person, you know. Even if you can't be all of them in your personal life, you really um, had that essence. So, so is it, was yeah. it difficult changing the voice that you were writing in? Um, actually, it wasn't difficult. I think I've spent all my life observing my mother and my grandmother. Um, so seeing them and listening to them talk um, really informed the piece. And it was a conscious decision to actually make it... Um, in the second person to write it in the second person because I really wanted the reader to feel what each of these people were feeling as well mm. um, and I think to a certain extent there's a shared experience as well you know we're all women and there's a certain element um, of you know um, struggle that my grandmother would have felt that I also feel or have felt um, the same with my mother as well. So it's um, it, it wasn't to answer your question. It wasn't that difficult, um, but it was, I thought, important to lay it out there for the reader in explicit terms, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, yeah, so you started uh, being more of a prose writer and uh, you know writing a novel. Uh, what attracted you to, to writing poetry? Um, 
so I've always liked writing poetry, but I've always thought that my poetry wasn't actually good enough to publish or for other people to really see. Um, I, we went to India, we lived in India for about three years, um, and in that time I was able to kind of switch my identity up a little bit. I'm a teacher by profession, and we got to India and I didn't really know who I was anymore because I wasn't teaching. Mm. Um, and the option was, yes, I could try and find a job in, in a school in India, but I didn't quite feel comfortable in the educational settings in India. Um, and I didn't really agree with the ethos always. You know, they're very results-driven. Um, and it's all about achievement and not necessarily holistic in a lot of schools. I'm not saying every school. Um, so it was something that I couldn't really get to terms with. And it was actually my husband's idea when he said, you know, maybe you should start writing because that's something that you've always wanted to do. So I started up a blog and I wrote mainly prose. I wrote um, sort of, I suppose, what, what's called now creative nonfiction. I didn't know what it was called then. Mm. Um, but, you know, experiences in the most lyrical way I could find. Um, and you know, scattered in there would be some poetry. Eventually, though, I got a job uh, for a pretty big magazine at the time. Um, they're not around anymore. It was called Kindle Mag. And they actually gave me the opportunity to write. And I learnt with um, some amazing people. Um, Preetha Gedriwal was the editor-in-chief there. Um, she's an amazing poet herself, actually. Um, and so she looked over my poems and kind of guided me in, in certain aspects. Um, and I was published in their anthology that they brought out alongside some amazing um, poets, uh, including Tishani Doshi and um, uh, Gulzar, who's uh, a very, very <laughs> famous legend in India. So it was like it was a big deal for me. Mm. Um, so it's an Indian-based magazine? Yeah, it was, well, it was based out of Calcutta or Kolkata um, in India. Um, but they had readership all over the world. It was online. Mm -hmm. um, they did have a print version. Um, but they stopped going into print because it was not as lucrative as it once was. Um, so it was mainly online. So we had writers from all over the world at the time, which was really amazing. We had... Um, Yes, so many. I can't really think off the top of my head. But Noam Chomsky was one of them. Mm. Um, Arundhati Roy. Um, so yeah, so lot, lots of people. Yes. Yeah, so you grew up in in the UK. Yes. And uh, you lived in India for three years. Then you said, um, "What would you say inspired your your writing um, about the experience of migration from India to the UK?" Um, so. As a daughter of a family who has um, gone through the whole migration experience, it is very much at the forefront of everything. Um, from the language we speak, to the food we eat, to the interactions that we have with the people around us. Um, and I think so many people of my generation um, will write about it because it is... It, it, I'm not saying that you can ignore it, but I feel like a lot of the time it can be 
um, forgotten about. So um, I can be spoken to as if I was a white person. You know, the other day I was spoken to um, by a fellow dog walker. I, I love walking my dog um, in in our sort of like backyard. Well, very close to our backyard, I suppose. We've got these woods and country roads, and very often I'll bump into other dog walkers and I'll stand and have a chat in the most English way possible. It's really lovely. Um, but one of these uh, people actually started talking about how terrible these refugees were mm. um, who'd moved into the hotel in our sort of local area. Um, the government had housed them there, I believe, um, and she was saying how terrible they were, how, how badly they littered, but it's not actually their fault because, you know, where they come from, they're so uncultured, they've got no sense of respect for their surroundings. And she was mm. telling me as if I was, you know, I'd, I'd definitely be empathetic to her point of view and, and I'd be able to relate, but I, I couldn't, and I, I couldn't respond. Yeah, how do you respond to that? I, I couldn't, I didn't know what to say. So I just, I went very quiet and I kind of said, oh, well, we, we've got to be going now mm. and just left the conversation as quickly as possible. Mm. Um, and I think, I mean, I haven't seen her since, you know, our paths haven't crossed, but I don't think that she'll know the effect that she had on me because I thought she was, we were, we were very friendly with each other. You know, we, we talk about all sorts of things. I mean, we're not friends, but we are quite good acquaintances. So I don't think she'll... What kind of effect she would have had. Mm. Do you want to read us a, a poem? Okay. Um, so I'll, I'll read you a poem that I haven't read in any of the open mics it's called no irish no blacks no dogs um and it's quite a um simple poem in many ways but i feel it's a poem that kind of speaks to the experience of lots of um immigrants that have arrived um to foreign lands i suppose so, no irish no blacks no dogs no no Irish dogs, no black dogs. No sign, no proof. No coloreds, no West Indians, yes. No coloreds, no West Indians, a house for sale. No sale. No roof, no coloreds, no sale. No West Indians, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. West Indian coloreds, Indian coloreds, a family, a coloured family, yes. No sale. No home, no roof, no vacancy. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. No proof, no roof, no home. No coloreds, no sale, no home, no. Poetry Two Rears is a podcast sponsored by Fawn Press. An indie press that publishes poetry that takes you by the hand and leads you into the woods. You can get 10% off all books on their website. www.fawnpress.co.uk With the code Poetry 10, as small letters, Poetry 10. You will find the code and the link in the description below. Thanks for supporting small businesses. Why not pick up Dev Jani's book? Back to the episode. Hmm. 
Yeah, I found that a really kind of striking poem, you know. It's just in your face. <laughs> and there there's a, a note at the bottom of it that yeah. explains the the you know, the history. Do you wanna tell us about it? Yeah, so um, in the Garden newspaper, um, I think there was an opinion piece. Uh, someone sent in a letter saying that actually um, the sign that lots of people see, no Irish, no blacks, no dogs, doesn't exist. It's a fake. Um, however, the sign that says no coloreds, no West Indians does exist. So I'm not quite sure what the point of this letter was, but he was, he, I think he wanted to make a point that the outrage that lots of people felt or feel at the idea that not very long ago in people's living history there were signs that said no Irish, no blacks, no dogs, um, is, was invalidated. It, you know, you shouldn't be angry because that sign didn't exist. Although he did say that no coloreds, no West Indies, yeah. that sign existed, so it's fine. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> like that changes that, something that changes to that outrage. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, but also, um, another part of the poem is that there was a young man, and I can't remember his name, unfortunately, but I did research it, and it's in the back of the book. Um, he wanted to buy a house for his family to live in. And and I'm sure he's not alone, but he tried to buy a house and he couldn't because every time he asked the estate agents, so is this house for sale? They say, yes, it's for sale. But as soon as they found out that he was colored or um, he wasn't white, then the sale would fall through. People didn't want um, foreign neighbors at the time. So what, what sort of time was that? Um, it was, I think it was in the 60s, actually. Yeah. Um, there is, uh, I think if you type in the link, um, it was in the 1960s. Mm. Um, you'll find the actual story um, that was, that I've cited. Um, so, definitely in people's living history. Yeah. Um, which is quite shocking for me, thinking that, you know, that could have been my grandfather. It was definitely my grandfather's time. Mm. He might have had to struggle um, looking for housing. Luckily, he was um, he found housing in a place where which was quite welcoming. I mean, we come from Coventry, a very very multi multicultural city, um, which needed a labour force, which is why you know a lot of immigrants came at the time. They were offered um, jobs and they're offered. Um, place to set up a new home so that was um, one of the reasons why you know so many um, migrants came at the time mm. I feel like uh, the 60s come usually come up in your work isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah so definitely yeah. the first section is very much um, the 1960s yeah um, how do you do the research then is it uh, you know the between your family's history and the experiences of uh, your grandmother, like people around you, and um, just the, the general cultural history, maybe reading books or stuff like that? Yeah, so um, at the time, so 1947 was the partition um, in India, which basically split India up into uh, two different countries, um, Pakistan and India. 
that happened and so all the Muslims kind of went to Pakistan they were supposed to go to Pakistan and all the Hindus were supposed to go to India however because this decision was made very quickly no one was really sure that this was actually going to happen the preparation was really bad and the planning was awful and non-existent hence why so many people were still migrating well into the 60s actually you know they were still moving um and so many people decided not to move as well and for a long time that was absolutely fine but when divisions kind of put into your heart i suppose you know things like that can really um affect you so a lot of my research is from that from the 1947 partition but i also found information about the 1964 riots which happened um and speaking to people i mean i found newspaper archives on that um my grandmother said there were riots when she decided to move which kind of it was like a catalyst for her to move so she was left on the muslim side of the border i suppose which later on would become bangladesh but was east pakistan at the time mm. um so her husband um left so my grandfather left and said look i'm going to go and find work in the uk i've got a work voucher i can do this and you'll come when i've set everything up um but unfortunately she had to it was a hasty kind of um exit for her because the riots kind of hit and she didn't want to put her family in any more danger so she had to move as quickly as possible and get across to the border to India. It was kind of it was um it was something that she it wasn't planned as well as it could have been because of um the violence that she faced. Um so a lo- again, a lot of research. So that that was newspaper archives that I'd read about this this riot that happened. Um which didn't actually it wasn't it didn't go on for very long this particular riot that happened in 1964 but from what i understand there were always riots there were always curfews there was always a threat of violence so um it may not have been just one incident that incited the move but what um i also kind of i looked online and kind of looked at the crossings as well that she described and i kind of i you know there's i when i'm google maps and kind of had to look and see which bit makes sense which bit is the shallowest bit of the river that you could cross from here to um, there yeah a real journey yeah absolutely <laughs> it was almost like a little bit of a rabbit hole um yeah. and you know so her stories were there and then i i posted an image on facebook and my uncle wrote underneath i i remember that i remember that crossing i was mm. i i was on the shoulders of my older brother mm. so and there's a first image there that comes <laughs> yeah so that that's one of the first poems actually <clears throat> um and it's it's harrowing to know that these people have been through such a scary experience i mean thinking about it from my point of view if i had to take my children um and she had she was carrying young children with her at the time if i had to do that in the dark by myself 
Um, I, I don't know how I would cope. Mm. Um, and my grandmother's always been a really, really strong woman. She doesn't, I've never seen her cry. I've only seen her quite stony-faced. When I was a child, I thought she didn't love me. She wasn't like the grandmother image that I kind of saw, you know, on television or other people's grandparents, you know. She mm. did not seem a very affectionate or a loving person. Um, and, I, and I understand now that's because of all the loss that she had to go through throughout her lifetime. Yeah, I definitely think there's a... A generational gap in how to talk about trauma yes. and grandparents like that generation they definitely have that you just don't talk about it and go and move on yeah. <clears throat> you know so like my my grandfather uh was hidden during the holocaust oh, and gosh. he never talked about that and uh until like my mum, when he was almost dying like kind of pushed him to talk about it and that shows I I saw this from like a different like in your book, I saw this journey mm. from like a different cultural perspective, you know, of how to talk about uh, traumatic events and how that the different generations um, had that relationship with it, and especially the the granddaughter, you know, would you think she's British, right? But there's a, such a complex relationship with identity. Like there's a poem. Um, where you talk about being in India. Mm -hmm. Maybe you want to read that, <laughs> that one. Can or, you tell me? Um, yeah, where, well, I don't remember the exact title, but uh, where you say the um, people speak loud uh, in a language oh, you don't. okay, yeah. Okay, let me see if I can find it. Um. Um, you are at a party? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. So you are at a party. The people around you are talking loudly. They always talk loudly. It is in the nature of the language they speak. You speak or don't speak. Because every time you try, the words leave your mouth like misshapen beasts, mutated, three-legged and mangled with an English accent. It is better for you to reply with words that are, diff that are a different species altogether. No mutation here. I'm working part-time, you say, and the words are like pedigree, Casey-registered, purebred hounds, perfectly formed and behaving in exactly the way they are expected to. But the elders in the room look disappointed. Not with your working part-time, they'll forget that soon enough, but that the words that you speak are not like theirs. Birds that screech and squawk and fly free around the room, landing wherever they need to. It is far better for you to stay quiet and let your words wait their turn. Mm -hmm. I love that. Words, birds that screech and squawk and fly free. There's the alliteration is fleur. <laughs> you can see the, I don't know, maybe the, the prose writing in it. Oh, um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think we were talking earlier, weren't we? Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to pick up a little bit about what you're saying about writing in the second person for um for, for your poetry. Is that um what what does poetry allow you to do differently from prose? How does that allow you to express yourself in a different way? That's a really good question. Like I can write a whole pamphlet in second person if I want to, which is mm. a very difficult 
literary device to use. Yeah. Could you explain for our audience what second uh, writing in second person is? So a lot of the poems, they begin with you. So, for example, this poem, You Are At A Party. Um, that's a really great way to hook a reader and to get them straight into the action because they quite literally are the main character in your story. Um, to carry that through a whole length of a novel is really tricky and mm. um, probably it may feel a little bit gimmicky as well. You know, you've got to be able to justify that choice, I think. Yeah, I think in prose that's usually the thing is that, like you say, it feels kind of gimmicky, doesn't it? But in, the, I guess, the shorter form, it, it feels like a, a another instrument you know another way of perspective of coming at it yeah absolutely yeah i mean i can play with sentence structure as well so i don't necessarily have to stick with the complete sentences mm. um i have with this poem um i think i've i've been quite um oh actually no i haven't i've started a i've started a sentence with not the elders in um not with your working part-time they'll forget that soon enough that i mean that's a sentence by itself mm -hmm. which i suppose could have been edited differently but it's a separate thought in my mind so mm -hmm. i've kept that with the f after a full stop um and obviously you know i can have two words together i can have a single word by itself in a poem and that's absolutely fine and the way it looks on a page is completely different and i can be I have to be very, very deliberate with my word choices and the way the words look on a page, but also if I were to read it out loud, how it would sound as well. Mm. Um, and you do that in prose as well, but it's not... Yeah, I mean, when I know I read out... When I'm checking my prose, I read it out loud just to make sure the sentence sounds correct. Mm -hmm. It seems to be a correct construction. Mm. But there isn't that sense that... I'm going to perform this. Uh, people, someone else is going to perform it. You know, is that different for poetry than would you say where it's like you're very aware that, that I could be reading this in front of people at <laughs> any point? In a way, yes. I mean, maybe not reading it aloud to people, but maybe how it sounds in my head, whether the words translate to the way I would like it to sound. Um, you like the musicality. Yeah. So the sibilance, the alliteration, the, you know, onomatopoeia, all, all of those literary devices that you might use in a, in a really good piece of prose writing. Mm. I feel like I'm, that's heightened in poetry because, again, it's mm. such a short form as well. You know, I don't have to sustain that for such a long time and that's unlikely to annoy the reader. You know, sometimes you can have flowery mm. prose and it's just too much. But I think in a poem, it, it can work. Yeah, and... Um... But how, what about the kind of in between, which is kind of poet like um, prose poetry, something you know, something that is more narrative driven within the the poetic form. Yeah, so I'll be completely honest with you. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what all these different things are called. So mm. I, I would call this a prose poem. You are at a party because it's written in prose and it's a poem. Mm. Um. So, and I think you're right in that a prose poem, there is a narrative to it. It tells a story. I think almost a, something like an epic poem, right? Like, um, you know, in the Odyssey, I mean, that is a, mm. 
a giant prose poem. And maybe prose poem is just a kind of uh, a modern version of, of saying epic poem. Or like yeah. novels written in verse, I know that exists as well. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Vikram yeah. Seth's got one called The Golden Gate, hasn't he? I haven't read it, but um, yeah, it's supposed to be an amazing poem, a novel written in verse, I think. I think that's his subtitle for it. Um, and we were talking about Virginia Woolf and Mrs. Dalloway, weren't we? Yeah, um, yeah. That's that's something I, you know, I've only just discovered actually, and because it was read to me, I could hear that I feel it's a long prose poem. I know it's a novel, and I know it was written a long time ago um, by a woman, but I feel like she was extremely ahead of her time, and she's written an amazing prose poem. You've got the repetition, you know. I think at one point she's at her party and she learns about <laughs> someone who's committed suicide. And they <laughs> <say> <laughs> subtle. <laughs> so automated. Thank you very much. We're yeah. too still here. That's okay. No problem. It's a bit part of the show. <laughs> yeah. The sun has set. Time stop. Yeah. So Mrs. Dalloway. Yeah. So Mrs. Dalloway. I feel is. A really amazing prose poem. She was at a party and someone talked about um, they one of their patients committed suicide, I think it was. Mm. And her first thought was, how dare they die mm. on the night or on the day of my party? Mm. They've just ruined my party. But then she repeats a line, but he chose to die. I think it's he chose to die or why did he die? But there's a line that's repeated again and again and again over a long section of prose. And it reads like a poem, well, it sounds like a poem mm. when it's read to you. I'm sure it reads like a poem. You know, I'm, I really want to go back and see how the text is set out now. Mm. Yeah. So we were talking earlier about um, your kind of transition from prose to poetry. And I was saying, you know, sometimes when you're writing prose, there can be paragraphs or sentences that basically are tiny mini poems. You know, they're poetic. They're, they're in a poetical form. Um, but I think just what occurs to me now is a big, um, a, a big jump is when you say to yourself, oh, I'm a poet. Right. <laughs> it's like it's like maybe you dip your toe by writing your first poem. Maybe you've been writing poet, uh, poems all along. Yeah. But at what point... Did you say to yourself, "Oh, I'm a poet," or do you do you wait for someone to give you that title? Oh, uh, I don't know. I tweeted it. <laughs> yeah. So, and was, was that a special day when you did that? <laughs> I, I don't know what it was. I can't remember exactly what triggered it. I think it might have been after the launch of the pamphlet. Um, mm. So, basically, I met Scarlett through the Fawn Press mentorship. Um, mm. Tell us more about that mentorship because we don't know what it is. Okay, so basically, uh, Fawn Press offered a mentorship program to any poets who, you know, wanted to learn a little bit more, have their poems looked at and, you know, edited and revised. And it had just come off the back of their anthology, which is a beautiful, gorgeous anthology called Elements. Mm -hmm. One of the most beautiful things you will hold in your hand. Um, and I'd submitted to that, but I was unsuccessful. To I, the anthology. To get, yeah. to get into the anthology. 
But Scarlett contacted me and she said, you know what, we really, really liked your poems. Unfortunately, there wasn't enough space. Mm. Um, you know, I think it's something to understand when you take rejections, right? Yeah, it's like it doesn't always mean your work. Uh, people don't enjoy your work, yeah. and and that helps with taking rejections. <laughs> That's it. And it was one of the first things that I'd submitted to as well. Mm. You know, and I polished and really looked at these poems very, very carefully. I asked my lecturer at university to kind of look at them. Oh, so you started your MA then? Or? Yes, I just started my MA, and our lecturer was very keen for us to submit. He said that it was very, you know, it's important. It's good practice. Submit. Mm. Mm. It will hone your craft. It will um, focus you. Um, and at the time, I wasn't sure, but I really liked the theme of the anthology, which was nature, elements... Um, magic, all of those things. And it's a, I think it's a theme that speaks to so many people. It's mm. a very good theme, you know, for, for an anthology. It's very open. Um, so I, you know, I had a few poems that I thought were good enough for this anthology and I sent them off and they were rejected. And I was I gutted by this point. I was mm. ready to kind of put my poet pen away, <laughs> hide it in a drawer and never come out again. Um, no, I'm definitely a prose writer. I'm a novelist. I'm going to finish this novel. That, that's what I thought. Oh, the second one or the first one? The second one. No, okay. So then um, I, I suddenly got an email from Scarlett saying, you know, we really liked your poems. We really wish that there was space, but we'd like to offer you the mentorship. Mm. Um, and I was like, you sure? Really? Um, and, you know, she was adamant. And I think just having someone look at your poems and tweak them. I learned so much. It was a short time. We only looked at four or five poems, I think it was. Um, In person or Zoom? Or... Zoom, online, um, sort of backwards and forwards via email. Um, and it was only over a short period of time. Um, but it was so useful um, just to have you know, a real poet, someone who knows what they're doing, an experienced person kind of look at your work and, and tell you how you could polish it even further. So, you know, if anyone's out there thinking about whether they should take up a mentorship they've been offered, do it. That's all. <laughs> Just do it. Hey, yeah. I hope you're enjoying listening to this episode. This episode is sponsored by Write Bloody UK. They're an independent publisher that publishes bloody beautiful poetry books. You get 10% off all books on their website, writebloodyuk.co.uk, with the code POETRY2YEARS. That's 10% off with the code POETRY2YEARS on the website, writebloodyuk.co.uk. Hope you enjoy it! Yeah, so I want to read uh, Dear Anup, but some of the writing is crossed out. It's, it's, what's that strike through? Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, first of all, like, what? Uh, why did you choose to use the strike-through method? So, um, basically, I wanted to convey how often immigrants write back to their families and not mm. give them the whole truth. You know, they don't want to share the sadness. There's no need. They don't. You're miles. You're thousands of miles away. And possibly the prospect of going back and seeing them again it could be years before you can do that before you can afford to do that 
Um, so, yeah, I mean, I know for a fact that my own father used to write back to his parents and not give them the whole truth. So we're kind of getting a glimpse at your drafting process. Uh, it's an intimate, it's an intimate look at the the thoughts on the page there as well. Yeah. So it's it's literally two minds and and two two stories, I suppose. Yeah. One for you know back home, everything's rosy, and one that's that's inside. Actually, I hate it here. <laughs> <laughs> And Eloise, you you asked you asked earlier about the yeah, how painting. how would you read it out um, to show what's crossed out? I don't know yeah. what you said, but yeah. <laughs> so my brother's an English teacher, and he teaches up to A level English in secondary school. And I asked him. I said, so you know, I really, you know, I really like this poem. But if someone asked me to <laughs> perform it, how would I how would I perform it? Um, and he said, well, the bits that are, you know, with the strike through, they're the bits that are, they're the sad bits. So they're the bits that you want hidden. So you'd read mm. them slowly, darkly, quietly. Yeah, like whispering. <laughs> yeah, al- almost whispering. Yeah, maybe. I mean, he didn't say whispering, yeah. but, you know, that would be a good way to read mm. it, I guess. And the bits that aren't, you joyful, light, carefree. Almost, mm. you could brag, I suppose. Yeah, Some yeah. of those sentences are sort of quite boastful. Mm-hmm. All right, let's do it. Okay. <laughs> Dear Anup, is that Anup? Yeah. yeah. Dear Anup, I hope this letter finds you in good health. How is Shillong? I know you're eager to learn about how I'm getting on, and I can tell you that it is so different. Here is a mirror to how things were back home, turned back to front and upside down. Here, the skies are grey almost every day, carrying a cold and gloom that weigh almost too much, a polished pewter, mysterious and substantial, And the cold is as refreshing as the nimbu pani we used to make. The children speak English now, since starting school. And when they speak among themselves, I find nothing of myself. I have become invisible. They have become impatient when I ask them to explain. Is it me they are laughing at? I am so proud. They know much more than I ever could. I can only watch on as they grow into people. I never imagined they would be. That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's great when you hear your own poem read out by mm. someone else. I found that experience really interesting. I love reading other people's poem. It's always really uh, a lot of pressure in, into, like, pronouncing the words it also because i'm french like uh, there's a lot of words and i'm like is that the right you know <laughs> no, I but yeah that was beautiful <laughs> oh, thanks so much <laughs> yeah just i it just shows so much in um also the um, like how few words there are and how they're all carefully chosen and it shows uh you know 
how everything you share is through words, right? It's through written word in the letter, and that's all they get. But there's so much more going on behind, and even in the poem, that you feel there's even more going on behind that you didn't put in. Um, so yeah, it's just so it's beautiful. Telling a story <laughs> just through the the editing process of it, mm. like you say, the the backstory of. Um, you know, maybe people can bring their own interpretations to to that as well, right? I mean, I can I can certainly relate to, you know, um, speaking speaking to people that are, you know, trying to speak French to people in France, and <laughs> that experience of you know how many times can you ask someone to repeat something, <laughs> yeah. and realizing that people. Are to, you know they have to have a lot of patience with you to mm. give you the time and there's also that line of like you know they're not a teacher yeah. <laughs> you know I really like the I have become invisible and I feel like that's that's the whole core of this poem mm. it's like in the mm. in the strike through it's, it's just becoming invisibility like all the thoughts that she has they're just taken out you know because that doesn't matter what matters is the children and that you know they have a good future kind of thing wow thank you for seeing that (laughs) yeah (laughs) you kind of wonder how much people will see and how much you know um when when you write a poem lots of things might be going through your head but you know you kind of it's not your poem anymore Mm. it's someone else's you know you hear that so often you write something Mm. down it's it's out in the world now. It's not your baby anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, yeah, thank you for seeing that, seeing the invisibility in the... Mm. I suppose um, um, you become redundant, irrelevant at some point. And I think that that's what's happened with a lot of people who are of my grandmother's generation. Um, they become irrelevant mm. very quickly. Um and it's sad, and I know sometimes they can feel feel that. Yeah. Uh, what do, can you explain a bit more what you mean by relevant? Yeah, so um, I was speaking, um, I was at an open mic, um, and someone came to me and they said, oh, this really resonates with me. I wish I'd spoken to my grandmother and asked her about her experiences. And I've, I've got a small glimpse of what she may have gone through, what she may have thought at the time and I think when I know for a fact that my grandmother could understand English sometimes she was even forced to speak it when she went to the mm. shops and things but then she quickly stopped speaking uh, I can I can kind of see what you mean now it's, it's kind of you get to a point where it's kind of easy to ignore take for granted it, you know, because you got used to them being quiet and yeah. this kind of thing. Yeah, that's it. Okay. So, and language being such a big part of our lives anyway, when everyone around you is speaking in one language. I mean, her own children, um, I know at least one of them, well, they all struggled to speak Bengali, our, our mother tongue, to their to her their own mother which is her first language it's the language that she communicates in suddenly it's a language that they are not comfortable in Mm. Um, and so they will speak in English and she'll reply back in Bengali and the conversation will be like that and eventually what happens is people will stop talking to her 
Um, and it's really sad, and we, we, I'm guilty of it as well, you know. I'll sit there with my children who've forgotten, who don't have any kind of, they, they've had a little bit of exposure to my first language and to my husband's first language because we speak different languages. That's a whole other long story. But um, so we converse in English all the time. So when I'm in the room, my mom's in the room, my dad's in the room, and the children are in the room, and my husband's in the room, and my grandmother's in the room, we're all speaking English because we all can. But my grandmother is suddenly in the corner, left out. Mm. And she can only sort of eavesdrop, I suppose, catch a few words, and then have to ask us to explain mm. if she feels optimistic enough that yeah. we will respond to that in mm. a positive way. Yeah. Um, which is really sad, and, and my dad sort of, he's always all for, you know, you should learn your mother tongue, you should learn your mother tongue just so you can converse with your grandmother. Mm. And it is really important. I see the wisdom of that now. But at the time growing up, I was like, yeah, but everyone speaks English. Mm. And it's, it's hard to keep switching. And if everyone around you speaks English, that language is forgotten and it's not relevant. Do you speak it now? Or is it still I complex? I do speak or? it now, but it, I, I've got an English accent and I speak it. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. And I speak and I stutter a lot when I speak it as well. Because... Mm. Um, I'm unsure of which words, tenses, you know, have I got that right sort of thing. I'm always kind of translating in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas before, when I was a child, I used to speak a lot more fluently. And the, what does live performance mean to you compared to writing poetry? I mean, what do you, what do you enjoy? I like more? seeing the reaction. I mean, I'm very nervous every time I perform mm-hmm. a poem out loud. Um, but I really like seeing the reaction from the crowds or, you know, hearing... Sometimes I can hear a gasp or, like... Uh, mm. had a lot of that today. Yeah. <laughs> mm. um, a lot of... Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's nice. <laughs> um, and that's, that's always really good to hear because it's validation, isn't it, at the end of the day, you know... Yeah, it's interesting how much we let, you know, the, the, the applause dictate, like, kind of what we're going to write in the future, you know. Like, for example, you know, when you get a really good reception from a poem, you kind of think, oh, I'm going to do more of that. I'm going to head more in that direction. You know? Yeah, possibly. I mean, I haven't thought about that, actually, in that sense. But I do, I do like the fact that, yes, the poem has done what it was supposed to do. People are appreciating what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. I think for the present, that that's what I'm focused on, not necessarily on what it, what I will write in the future in terms of formal um, content. Mm-hmm. Have you got any favourite poem in this collection? Uh, I really like Coconut Butterfly, but I feel that's very long as well. Mm. Um, you've you've played with the arrangement here yes. and of, of the form. Um, this is this is something I know is is done more in poetry than prose as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, what? Um, so why have you arranged it like this? Maybe, maybe you can show the camera. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can, you can see, see from there. Yeah. You can crop it. Yeah. 
drop in a, a shot, I think. Um, so the reason why I've chosen this is because I think as human beings, we can be very clinical and we can say, we can give very reasoned arguments for our actions and why we do certain things. And I wanted to play with that definitely in terms of the introduction of what a coconut butterfly is, which is, you know, a completely made up insect. It doesn't exist. Um, so I wanted that to kind of be there in in the reader's mind that, you know, we can we can be scientific about our choices and we can have very rational reasons for doing things but actually at the end of the day at the end of the day we're humans and it should be empathy and sympathy which drive our decisions um so i i wanted to kind of juxtapose the two i suppose Mm. in that sense um coconut butterfly coconut butterfly cocoa aspirans often appear dull brown or black when in flight However, they possess a unique ability to change colour when they come into contact with other butterflies of a lighter shade belonging to a different species. Coconut butterflies often mimic the behaviour of these other butterfly species so effectively that they have been known to be accepted into their social groups without suspicion. Mm. Graham and Nottetal, 1967, have also noted instances where the coconut butterfly has successfully mated with butterflies outside of their species, something that is not at all common in the insect world. They are careful not to stand out from their surroundings for fear of discovery, possibly a latent evolutionary instinct as noted in the celebrated peppered moth. This is because it has been known for other butterflies to viciously attack and cast out any members outside of the species perceived to be a threat. (laughs) You. Perfect prefect in your old private school where they discuss skiing over the break. You only eat with a knife and fork on porcelain plates, shunning the stainless steel, which could never carry such meals containing such little spice. Your palate is delicate. You prefer cheesy pasta or sausages and mash to the pungent dishes you are sometimes served by your mother, whose tongue, careless and demanding, you choose to be illiterate in. You abhor Bollywood, trite and contrived. You prefer Austin and period drama, where the lady is cotton white, like you, on the inside. But on the inside hides a shy brown girl, uncertain about her place in the world, longing to be a Priyanka in a world where Elizabeths and Edwards are in control and pastel shaded. You are well versed in great works you aspire to but you wish you could relate to the books your father reads and the songs of revolution he sings. And you savour your mother's food, made with a sauté of a certain spice blend, offered in perfect hillocks and mounds, only to be taken with your deft fingers. And you worry, were you ever really good enough to pass for what they wanted? This is great. I, I really love that. Yeah. This really, really gives you an insight into some of your anxiety around that identity. And, you know, it just it gives an insight, humanizing insight into, you know, for someone like me, for example. <laughs> and um, it's just interesting to see the juxtaposition of the different kind of cultural interests there. For ex- You know, I'm, I'm interested 
um, when you say, you know, you kind of wish you were interested in your dad's books. So uh, what kind of books are they? Yeah, so he, a lot of Bengali novels. Um, so he, he, and lots of Bengali poetry as well. Um, he was always reading growing up and he would take us to the library and like I said, Coventry is a very multicultural city. Mm. So there would be a Bengali section where he'd be able to read his Bengali newspapers and he'd be able mm. to find some Bengali books. And the librarian was absolutely amazing at the time. Um, and she'd be able to bring in the books that he wanted um, and subscribe to the newspapers that he wouldn't be able to find anywhere in the shops and things. So. Um, that was a real outlet for him and I would see him being able to read it and he'd tell me um, there was one book in particular actually a Taslima Nazreen book called um, it's called Shame in English but it was called uh, Lodja in Bengali mm. and when he read it it's quite a revolutionary book actually in terms of I think it talked a lot about abuse um, uh, and it was almost a memoir and uh, I think uh, she, the lady who wrote the book was, um, I think she was exiled from her country, which Bangladesh at the time. I think so. I'll have to double check mm. that. You know, I'm throwing out these facts. We've got interesting, yeah, I feel like we've got interesting homework to do yeah, on this. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so... But my dad read it and he was like, this is amazing. This is groundbreaking. This is, you have to read this. You have to read this. Mm. And at the time, there was no English translation. Um, and it, and that, that's interesting. Because there, were, there were often books that he'd read and talk about and say, this is really good. This is so profound. And this is so mm. clever. And I wish you could read it. I wish you could read it. And I never really could. Um, I, th I think um, it's interesting there. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it kind of suggests as well that, um, you know, what you aspire to spiritually is maybe not what you're seeing represented. Yes. And it's kind of you're communicating through that that, you know, there's a confusion there. You think, yeah, I, I want that, but these people don't look like me. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> And I just no, just it's, it's it's an interesting way that it's been communicated in the poem. You know, it's not explicit. It's it's you kind of feel your way to that. You're kind of feeling the kind of young emotions. You're kind of feeling that experience from that young person's perspective, who maybe can't give voice uh, to to it. Yeah, yeah, mm. definitely. I mean, the duality is is real um, mm -hmm. with someone like me. <laughs> so it's you know I'm surrounded by you know this amazing um, canon of literature that you know I was introduced to at school um, and we're told that this is what poetry is and this mm. is this is what good writing is and isn't Jane Austen really clever don't you think she's so mm. funny and yeah, this wise and witty this comes up a lot in our in our conversations actually about how you know the, the poets and writers are put on a pedestal from the school curriculum yeah, yeah. and it almost has an alienating effect on people you know whether you subscribe to that or you rebel against it or you feel alienated from it and it's yeah well, oh, definitely. I think the curriculum is changing now, though. I think that's really 
um, exciting, lots, lots of things. Trying to bring more, more diversity into yeah. what they're teaching, right? Like Absolutely. I believe um, Roger Robinson, who wrote um, Paradise... Oh. Um, Roger Robinson has... Um, a portable paradise. A portable paradise. Uh, in the pocket. Yeah. <laughs> That's why you can carry it around with you. Yeah. Oh, but um, his poems are amazing in that book. Um, and it talks a little bit about, you know, it talks about race, identity, the Grenfell Tower incident. Um, and he has such a beautiful way with words and everything's just so visual but they brought his book I think into the GCSE curriculum or the mm. A-level curriculum um, not sure which but so that's really amazing having living poets you know from a background that is not mm. upper middle class white you know old man with a moustache you know <laughs> staring at you from a black and white photograph on the cover mm. that is amazing okay. yeah it was it was really lovely talking to you Devjani I had a wonderful conversation um, everyone pick up this book <laughs> Fung Press uh, is it on their on their website and um, is it on any other bookshop or um, as far as I know not yet but it will be um Saturday books, I think, are going to be carrying it um, in Dudley. Um, but yeah, you can always message me, DM me. Yeah, what's your what's your socials? Um, I think my Instagram is dbodapudi, and um, my Twitter is devjani bodapudi. Um, It'll be in the links anyway. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking yeah, to you thank both. You. Yeah, thank you so much and thank you for listening. <laughs> thank you for listening to Poetry to Your Ears. This podcast is published as a newsletter on Substack. All of our content is published for free, but if you would like to support our work, you can become a paid subscriber. This will help us afford transcripts for the deaf and hard of hearing community and anyone who would benefit from reading the podcast alongside hearing it. You can also support us for free by rating the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or writing a review on Apple Podcasts. Share the show with your friends, fellow poets and poetry lovers. If you want to interact with us, you can follow us on at poetry to your ears on Instagram and at poetry to number two your ears on Twitter. Or you can also write a comment on Substack. <laughs>